Hey there, it's Ben. This week I've got a few special guests here to talk about The Last Jedi. We talk about a few of the role-playing implications and a few of the things that we find more interesting and some of our own perspectives on a few of the scenes that go in or a few of the settings that happen. As it sits, all four of us like the movie. We're not going to be pulling things apart in minute detail. We're there for the story and we're there for having a bit of fun with this. As such, we all are going to be interested in hearing back from you on Twitter with some of your own experiences and also some of your own ideas. Finally, I'm wanting to give a shout out to Patreons at patreon.com slash the Hydean Way and all the support that every single one of you are giving to the show. It is really heartwarming to have a group backing us that completely. Thank you and now on to the show! After this spoiler warning. So if you haven't seen The Last Jedi and you don't want to be spoiled, turn off this podcast now, go watch the movie, and then come back. Well, waking up in the Canto Bite holding cells isn't the first place I'd recommend seeing on the tour. Besides... I see a bunch of people I recognize. I can only hope that we can get out of here in a timely fashion and back to the purgle. I smile when Ben walks in. One more and we've got a full bolo ball squad. I run up and give him a big hug. He will certainly have the mental fortitude to get us out of this one with limited casualties. The hug lingers too long and becomes awkward. Hey, you have an escape plan, right? Well, how weird do you want it to get? I don't need any new charges added on if that's what you're asking. Well, I have some homemade Silaston strudel I brought from home. I thought maybe if I was willing to share it with everyone, maybe they'd open the cage to eat it, and then- That's a stupid plan. No one even likes Silaston strudel. No, what we need is- Wait, doesn't Silaston strudel explode when mixed with Mon Cal marmalade? They don't all do, but you can bet Mama's Mon Cal marmalade will. It's that Old Republic flavor in the New Republic packaging. Don't go with anything other than Mama's. It's a trap. Welcome to this special episode of Tale from the Hydean Way. We're your hosts, Ben Yendel. Christine Chester. With special guests, Ross Rockefello. And Chris Ng. Welcome. This time, we've got Ross from Dice for Brains, Chris from Sil Zero and Heroes, and Christine, all here with me to talk about The Last Jedi and some of the story things that we can pull from it. I am definitely figuring that we're going to be talking about some of the things we like, some of the things we found cool, weird, whatever, with The Last Jedi, but also just some of the cool story beats that we had seen. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate getting to chat with everybody about this. This is yeah one of the fun parts about the movies, right? Ross, you're so dreamy. You're so charming. <laughs> oh, why, thank you. Okay, I'm going to start. I'm going to go on record and say this is the best one of all of them. All nine, all TV series, anything I've ever seen, read, looked at. This is my favorite. Top notch. Okay, that that is really I bold, know. and my immediate question That's bold. is that is why? bold. Why do you like this one so much? Okay, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this because uh, I've been trying to gather my thoughts about the Last Jedi just in general. I've seen it three times. Okay, I think part of it, and of course, this is true of anything, is that when you view art, it's through your own lens, right? It's through your own experiences, and. I feel like the messages of The Last Jedi are hitting me at a time 
when I need to hear them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it very personally resonated with me on some of the big moments. I'm going to go ahead and assume this is there's a giant spoiler warning for this episode. So, you know, I'm just going to talk about stuff. Right. I'm kind of figuring coming out on the 14th of January, it's been a month. By the 14th, it's possible I may have seen it four times. Oh my. <laughs> I'm working on it. Hmm. So I think like there's two things that struck me very, very deeply. There's two lines in particular. One is Yoda when he's talking about how those that you teach grow to be beyond what you are. And as a teacher, this has been very resonant for me. Because it's very true. Yep. They do grow far beyond whatever you are, whatever you've passed on. And just it validated a lot of how I teach, which is probably sort of in, unconventional, but you know, passing on not just strength and wisdom, but failure and folly. And so all those messages hit me real strong. And then, you know, coming out of Rogue One, and this is an equally bold and unpopular position, is I don't really like Rogue One that much. And I think it's a good movie. I don't think there's anything structurally or story-wise that has a problem other than maybe we wish we knew the characters longer. Mm. But it was just so dark. And I got too much darkness in real life uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to confront. And I just didn't need that in my Star Wars. And so the moment when I'm watching Finn going down the, the barrel of the battering ram laser, and I'm sitting there going, great, this is what Star Wars is now. It's suicide runs, every mission. And then Rose comes out of nowhere and saves him. And she says, we, we don't win by destroying what we hate, but by protecting what we love. I was like, yes, girl, you get me. <laughs> you get me so hard right now. And that scene seems to be like one of the big splits, too. Really? Am, am I correct? Like, I have talked, everybody I've talked to has referenced that scene as either the thing they didn't like or the thing they liked the most. Yes. Like, for me, that one sort of was the seal on... Finn's entire journey through the entire show like you've got him starting off with him just wanting to run away from the entire conflict to try and save Rey and then he's willing to give his life for the cause but not just learning to give his life but learning why to give your life for the cause I don't know I might have been maybe in the middle of the pack I don't know how everyone felt about it I you know enjoyed it it I I wouldn't jump out and say it was my absolute favorite one, but what I will say is when I I watched it in the theater, it was the one that felt most like a role-playing game to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like that felt like something we've done at a tabletop, you know, love it or hate it. It felt like a role-playing game to me. Like I was having moments where I was trying to figure out the like player table talk that was happening while the characters were discussing their actions. And I I don't know, it connected with me like that. There's a very few movies have kind of done that where I'm immediately like, man, we could have done this at a table or played something like this can be a a new avenue to get people into the hobby. So I don't know. I really enjoyed that part of it. Well, and I think it's because it's a movie of very dramatic highs and very low lows. Yeah. Which is, you know, what you get when you're creating a story off of randomization is that mm-hmm. things go either very well and very fortunate and then they go very, very badly for you. So I could see how you would come across that. I think to sort of support your point, I think I saw 
Angela Kraft, the uh, GM for Fandible Solo Shot, mentioned the same thing. Uh, she said, "Oh, really? Oh, cool." Yeah, she said very much the same thing that she was sitting there, like figuring <laughs> out where the triumphs and the despairs were. Yep. And boy, were there some despairs! And my my brother, when I went to see it with him during the Battle of Crate, uh, when all the Tie Fighters come rushing in. Uh, at the speeders, <laughs> he immediately goes, "Well, that's a heck of a dark side flip." Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> by the way, Tie Fighters. So I think your your sentiment is shared. Excellent. Uh, back on the like the scene with Rose saving Finn, I'm kind of in a similar camp as Ross, where I liked it. It's not my favorite part of the movie, but I like the message, which is for me overall what I like about the Last Jedi. I like the themes. I like the messages that it pushes throughout the the movie, the, you know, let the past die, failure is the greatest teacher, things like that. Anytime one of those moments came up, those were the things I greatly enjoyed and including Rose's, you know, protect what you love, you know, rather than attack what you hate. I just really liked Rose. I liked that character. Um, there was some- well, she, she, she is us. She is the fangirl in this whole situation is that why? Okay. That's how I see her. And I, I love mm-hmm. that character too, because she has a slightly different perspective. She's hopeful and idealistic without being stupid. Like, you know, she doesn't fall for Finn's trick at the beginning. She sees past yeah, kind of you know, the rich people and the, the sheen on Canto Bite. But at the same time, she's constantly the one who's pushing that message of hope when otherwise like Finn might cut and run. Or DJs all over the place, completely unpredictable. (laughs) Yeah, I think to cut off criticism, no, there's not a lot of depth to Mm -hmm. Rose. There's not a lot of conflict. And I think that's what makes her effective. It's just like she represents a very simple, like hopeful, I believe in this cause. I've been in this cause since I was a child. And I'm going to hold that line steady. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. We're in an era where people seem to want all their heroes to be antisocial and anti-heroes and drug addicts and <laughs> hyper-violent. And, and Rose is not. She's just, I'm going to do what I do. Um, I think the only disappointing part for her from me was she never got to do her techie thing. Right. Yeah. She, she should have... Yeah, just probably. been the code break. Yeah, I bet there's a deleted scene somewhere. Like uh, w- one of the weakest characters in the film for me was DJ, and was the whole like, right, yeah. Canto bite setup. I didn't mind some of the message behind him, but he was all over the place, and just felt to use another RPG analogy. Nicole and I described him as the the GM's like pet NPC that just didn't really resonate with the party. Interesting. Yep. I see that there's a bit of like that deus ex machina to him. One of the big things I really liked about Rose and similar to Finn in the first movie is she's got that representation of the direct cost of the conflict. You know, I think that's really that emotional linchpin. So, you know, I didn't get that from Finn this time, but so I'm I'm glad we got another character where we can kind of play that, you know, the, the individual human cost to a war like that. And she definitely seemed to be one to be looking at the cost to almost everything. It was an interesting sort of first step mm-hmm. for Star Wars to step beyond just a big, powerful group oppressing everyone else. How far does this big, powerful group yes. extend? Oh, yeah. The economic engine is so interesting. Like, Rose is sort of teaching Finn about why you fight, whereas, like, Finn 
has fought, but he's been fighting for such personal reasons of he's wanting to save Rey. At the start of this movie, that is his ostensible goal. By the end of the Canto Bite scene, he's no longer fighting for making sure that Rey's okay. It isn't solely around Rey, it's around something bigger. Back on the the topic of cost, can we talk about yeah. the scene with Paige Tico, Rose's sister, for a moment? Because I... Like, I've never cared more about a character in, like, a minute of film than that scene on the bomber, where yeah. she goes from just and, some gunner to a a hero making a sacrifice. Yeah, my, my dad watches a lot of, uh, like, mm-hmm. World War II films, mm-hmm. and that's, like, a common... So that whole scene, to me, just because I've seen them, like, in the backgrounds and stuff and on the history, like, that whole thing just really felt like one of those... World War II documentaries and just getting down to that human level again. Yeah, it's just, I, I love when they turn a character like that. Like, those were the surprises that I really enjoyed from this movie. I, I had flash moments too. I don't know if any of you ever saw the movie Red Tails mm-hmm. um, about the Tuskegee Airmen yeah. from uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, and their whole deal was, you know, they protected bombers. So, like, those sequences are just almost. <laughs> Portion for portion. Oh, yeah, let's protect these slow bombers. Mm-hmm. I liked it. Um, that, I think, and it, I don't know. I had this sense that Brian Johnson was messing with me, like, personally. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like he said, what, you know, when Luke goes, what do you think? I was like, going to go walk out in a laser sword and confront the first whole first order by myself. And I was kind of like, well, yeah, I kind of, kind of was. <laughs> uh, sorry. My bad. And I feel like, you know, the sequence with Paige Tico is a great sequence. She is definitely heroic, great actress, showing us a lot of a person without ever really speaking. Yeah. It set me up to believe, and I'm sure this was intentional, that Finn was going to die later on in that same sequence. You know, I was like, great. Well, we've already got the precedent that people are sacrificing themselves all over the, all over the place. And again, with my whole kind of like boo on Rogue One's darkness thing, I was like, great. I mean, I'm like, this is a great scene, but do we have to kill off everybody? Like, I'm so, stop killing our, stop suiciding. Um, you know, watching it the second, second and third time, knowing that, knowing how it works out, it's a great scene. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It really does sort of show the resolve of the resistance and how far they're willing to fight, even this pitch battle, that to take out this planet killer it may not be as quick as a death star but it's still a planet killer now from what i understand i haven't read a lot of the surrounding material but is there quite a bit more to like that whole encounter or at least those ships like, i know um uh, laura dern's character has been in was it bloodlines that she was in no 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 she's not in bloodline she's in uh princess leia of alderaan yep. there it is she was actually pretty interesting in that, showing a different sort of side. And then I know they're going to, like, Paige and Rose are getting some kind of, um, I'm going to say a book? They've both got young adult novels. Oh, uh, okay. So there's not anything, like, currently out that is kind of expanding on that story more? Just stuff that's, you know, coming out soon? To my understanding, Bomber Command and Cobalt Squadron both are around Rose and Paige. Okay. Cool, 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 cool. I've got one, but I haven't read it yet, and I haven't seen the other one around. I'm a bomber nut. <laughs> that those are called SB-17s. Well, you have the giant Lego ship of them. Chris, you're talking about Ryan Johnson calling you out personally. I'm thinking, oh, we're doing like a Memphis Bell type thing here. Mm. 
yeah, if you go with the World War II style movie, yeah, this is going to be a Dan Buster's style attack where almost all of them get chewed to pieces. In the way it's shot, the way it's presented, you can kind of tell how it's going to go, but it still has a huge amount of power for it because these people, they still know they have a job and they're still trying to do it. Like, it's that drive of Paige that just keeps getting me with it. As long as she has breath, she keeps going. So let's play, let's play, uh, role play devil's advocate here for a second because. Okay. So I love that sequence for myself. I don't really care that it doesn't make internal consistency say, sense, but those bombers don't really make a lot of sense in the rest of the Star Wars <laughs> universe. They do not. Not even a little bit. <laughs> Like we've seen in episode three, missiles that detonated and transformed into sophisticated sabotage droids. And here we are 60 years later, and it's like, well, we could take a hand grenade and drop it out the bottom of a spaceship, I guess. They're essentially the same charges that Han and Chewie were using in, in The Force Awakens, right? Because of that big round spherical thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is just me getting old. Maybe <laughs> 10, 12 years ago, I would have been all about like somebody like Pablo Hidalgo. And I know I'm always giving Pablo Hidalgo crap, but it's like, you know, Ryan Johnson makes an artistic decision to, I'm going to do a World War II bomber sequence. And now it's his job to figure out why this makes sense in the universe. Because Thai bombers did it in Empire Strikes Back? I'm not even talking about gravity. I'm just saying, like, why is this their best idea? Let's put a million explosives on a ship that, for some reason, can't move very fast. Why can't that ship move very fast? I mean, in real life, those bombers had a lot of weight to them. They had to carry a lot of fuel. They were, you know, bound by gravity. But in space, essentially, there isn't really anything preventing them from going much faster or putting much bigger engines on them or just popping out of hyperspace above the target rather than having to, like, crawl your way forward. Again, I don't particularly care because it made for a cool story, but it doesn't make a ton of sense in the Star Wars universe. So how do you deal with that if you're a prospective GM going, well, how am I supposed to relegate these things together? Well, so you asked the question, so you don't have to answer it. So that was very clever of you. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, I have an answer. I mean, so like, let's say if I were a GM and I say, well, you have to go on one of these slow bombers and it goes really slow and you're going to drop all these bombs. And your Star Wars nerd player goes, uh, yeah, but in episode three, we have these sophisticated missiles. So why don't we just use one of those? I'm going to flip a light side to make it one of those instead of one of these dumb bombers. Okay, well, clearly what you do is you put an NPC near them that has like a weird hat or something, and then they're only going to focus on that and not at all about the speed of the bomb. Clever. I like it. That's my first go. Let's, let's see if we can get them to bite on that and then just willingly suspend a little extra disbelief this time. I mean, you have to let them do it, right? That's the way the game goes. So they've just figured out a better way to do it. It's not. That's not really the way the game goes, though. Like the Star Wars is always you know emphasize that kind of world war ii dogfighting thing mm-hmm. and uh i'm trying to think of what what missile you're referencing from episode three but like my point of view on the bombers the, the buzz, buzz droids, droids that droids? take out anakin's fighter and obi-wan great a buzz droid you know missile that can take on a fighter you want me to use bombers to take on a capital ship it's a completely different thing with the number of bombs and stuff it has and that's kind of the way i would spin it more yeah there's going to be other ordnance for other situations yeah, these things are slow and heavy because Star Wars and physics, you know, have kind of a loose relationship because, <laughs> you know, space opera. That's the way I would go with it. 
You're not flying one of those things for the purposes of taking on fighters. And Chris, what was your solution? My solution is to muck about with the backstory and be like, well, look, these weren't originally meant to drop bombs. They're originally meant to like, that's good. I don't know, drop seeds. Oh, nice. Drop pamphlets, drop something else. But you know, this is the resistance. We don't have a a factory that can make a fancy bomber. So we just retrofitted it to hold a bunch of bombs. This is the best we got. I love that. That's great. That one's definitely nice. I'm kind of going back to the, why I like the Y-Wing versus an X-Wing. I, I'm one of those really weird people. Yeah, that is weird. I hate the Y-Wing. The Y-Wing is garbage. It's underpowered. It's too slow. The amount of people that say that, it's like, that's the thing. It's like, oh, it's too slow. It's the one that you call in to actually blow stuff up. Yes. Like, the X-Wings are nice to fly around. They go around shooting all the dang ties. Sure, they can shoot out a few turrets. But then when you need to actually blow something up, you call in the Y-Wings. And I mean, in story, sure. I I, I speak of the Y-Wing from my experience playing all the X-Wing games growing up. <laughs> yep. And the X-Wing games, the Y-Wing was so slow, and it did not have the armor to compensate. And so you were just constantly fiddling with your power outputs to just be barely fast enough to get anywhere. And this is why the B-Wing is the best ship. Yes. Ross has got my back. <laughs> Yeah, the B-Wing had enough oomph to, like, actually... I mean, you were so slow, but at least you could sit there and take some shots. The Y-Wing felt like it was, you know, made out of balsa wood. I just... Anything with a little asymmetrical design, I'm I'm pretty much (laughs) down for. (laughs) I played X-Wing a little too much. I would take out capital ships in a TIE fighter, so... You're not the only one. Yeah, I think all four of us here are guilty of that. Well, I was referring to Mr. Poe practically there. I want to talk about Kanto Bite for a second here. And specifically what I want to talk about is the alien menagerie. I think I saw a couple people on Twitter complain, how come on Kanto Bite we don't see one alien that we recognize? It's a big galaxy. My feeling was, and I caught the same thing, I was like, wow, I don't see anything that I recognize. And I went, that's awesome. And I feel like from a role-playing GM perspective, something that I, I've wanted to do, but I've been too afraid to do, is just make up an alien race. Yeah, that's fun. Just be like, <laughs> you know you know what? There's this thing, and it's here. It, you've never done that? Not No, not for not for the game, no. Oh, I, I love taking either little snippets, like an alien race's name that was never expanded upon, or just creating something from scratch. Mm-hmm. Like in, in my campaign, it takes place in the Cathal sector, and there's a lot of weird alien species from the old West End games days out there. I use them fairly often mixed in with some familiar species and some I'm just going to make up because it's fun. <laughs> yeah, see, it's something I've never done. And it's something that if we decide to do Silhouette Zero Season 3 with, you know, the characters that we're using, I'm just going to make something up. And I felt like very freed after watching Kanto Bite. I'm like, look, you didn't use one of the same aliens, not one. I guess you could say the same thing from The Force Awakens in, in Maz's Cantina. I don't think there were no, any I don't think so. redos there either. But that one felt more, I don't know, tongue-in-cheek. Like, I felt like the alien se- the Cantina sequence in that movie was more about like, ha-ha, look, we have just giant bugs because that's what mm-hmm. they did in A New Hope. Like, here's some mosquitoes because in A New Hope there's just a praying mantis hanging out. Mm-hmm. Like, the sense I got from it was, you've never seen these aliens before because they're all the high-rolling, like, upper crust, and we don't spend a lot of time with them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what was like, oh, look, here's a unified group of aliens who just are super rich, and that's why you never see them. I've got a more cynical, like, response to 
parts of uh, the film. Uh, so there, I can definitely see that too. And then there's always in the back of my head that like, they're just kind of waiting to see if one of these like takes off and then that's going to become like this marketing thing. So I have to <laughs> shake that kind of stuff out of my head when I'm in scenes like that. So I'm constantly like, they're, they're looking for the next Boba Fett and they're hoping it's going to be one of the guys here. On the other hand, take a look at the mentality behind Akbar. The guy was specifically allowed to take whichever prosthesis that he wanted, so he took the one that he considered the ugliest to show that anyone could be a admiral. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The character that Mark Hamill did, the one that's loading up BB-8 with all those coins, they did so many of that style, but they weren't on screen long enough to really land with anyone. Hmm. Yeah. Until you run into another Tales from the Most Heisley Cantina or from a certain point of view. Until we get a lot of backstory on any of those, they're not really going to hit because they're part of a whip pan over a casino pit. My cynical nature is more each art director goes, well, you felt your aliens were weird? Well, watch this. I'm going to make an opera singing bubble lady. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's more of a one-upping type deal. Like, well, I can make weird aliens. Can you make weird aliens? Yep. You know, like. Yeah. That's probably my one biggest complaint if I have one of that is kind of what you were just talking about, Ben, where everything feels like we're trying to spark something else off, like, and let's see if we can spin this off into its own thing. Or So there's a lot of those, like, false starts, kind of. I don't know if anyone else got that. I feel like Snoke is probably the biggest perpetrator of that. Uh, I'm going with Snoke is probably the biggest Wizard of Oz going. Yeah. I love it, though. That's like That was like a gift to us. The one nice part about Snoke is that he actually had some color. The thing that I am still bugged about by the Canto bite scene is, from my memory, there's three colors in the entire sequence. Yeah, it's kind of gold, white, and black. We are getting a bunch of new alien species, but where's the blue ones? Where's the green ones? But maybe that, that speaks to the whole hierarchical thing, you know? It's like... Could be, yeah. Know. Which is why it's such great, like, RPG fodder, because, you know, is it is it elective surgery? Like, are they actually <laughs> removing it so they look more like, you know, is you can spin that into a whole campaign. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I can see that, because I know from an RPG perspective, I can only really picture a handful of the aliens from Kanto Bike clearly in my mind, and none of which I look at and go, oh, I want to play that. Yeah, or know more about that. Yeah. I want to know about that opera singing bubble lady. Like, what the heck? Yes. How does that even exist? Their musicians in Star Wars just have so much charm. Like, all of them. (laughs) They're all these minor characters, and they end up having these amazing stories. So, can we talk about the other half of the movie? The the Force side with... Oh, yeah, we haven't even touched on that yet, have we? The cool people with lightsabers that actually don't get used a lot and all that cool stuff. Yes. So... Uh, I think this has come up at least through through Twitter. I actually don't know if it's come up on, on the podcast at all. I already adored Kylo Ren going into this movie, and I just like him all the more after this. I love that character's arc. I loved how Adam Driver portrayed him, and I could not be happier with how the whole situation with Snoke turned out. Mm-hmm. To finally see the, like, they're, granted, they're not Sith, but still, there really are Sith. Rule of two occurring right there. Mm. And I just heard a groan from Ben. Kylo Ren's like the second big bad that I've actually liked in all the movies. I don't really consider Krennic a big bad, but I like him. Otherwise, between Kylo Ren and Vader, those are my two that I actually care about for bad guys. The 
suppressed, there were forces in opposition or something. The growth, the thing that's been interesting about Ren is that he actually has a story. Yes. It isn't just big bad that shows up on the scene and then affects the plot. There's actually some story going on on that side. I didn't get enough of it, though. That's my, my, I did not get enough. Really? I, I, I walked out of that and just, I felt like I did not get enough Ray and I did not get enough Kylo. I don't know why. I'm sure if you, I measured the screen time, they'd probably have the most, but I just, I felt like I didn't get enough. What did everybody think about the, the scenes between the two of them with regards to like the force visions and stuff? Here's where I'm going to say something that's going to make me sound really pretentious, but I can't think of another way of, of putting it. <laughs> okay. So everyone make sure you, ooh, when he says it. Or snort in disgust. I will accept okay. either. Okay. I don't particularly like kylo ren but i do like ben solo wow you're right (laughs) okay (laughs) see i told you that's really 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 pretentious because i feel like kylo ren and for me this feels intentional kylo ren is like the persona that ben solo is trying to develop right he's trying to become this creepy i'm like darth vader (laughs) i've got a mask but that's gone now though i know but that's why i think in this movie we didn't see kylo ren the the dark scary guy we saw ben solo interesting okay it wasn't until the very very end that we actually got actual kylo right and i hate that guy that guy's like whiny and like it throws tantrums and i mean you're supposed to hate him for that that's fine I, i don't think there's anything wrong about him I have the appropriate amount of distaste for him because he is the bad guy. But I really got enjoyed seeing the complexity of who Ben Solo is. Because I, I don't know if they're going to go the whole, like, redeem him arc. But I feel like no episode nine is it has to be that Ben Solo has to become the villain and not this facetious Kylo Ren. I mean, and you're right. He's stripping away all that showmanship, right? He smashes the mask. He's doing all this stuff. But... We got to see why this guy was so messed up with these scenes with Ray and him. And if, you know, I've seen it a few times and it's like Ray comes out when there are those initial force connections, just like, you're a monster, you're horrible. And he's like, I know, but do you really, do you want to know why? (laughs) Do you want to know why? I'll tell you. I'll tell you why. And then, you know, she's kind of softens to him. Mm -hmm. I was, I was ready for either one of them to turn and I, I know it basically ended up, they, they kind of ended up in roughly the same position they started off, although there was some internal character growth there. But I was actually, at, at that point, we'd had the rug pulled out from under us so many times. I was just so ready for either one of them to end up on the other side. Which I would call that, that scene very successful then, because there should be that doubt on which way they were going to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm still ultimately happy that, you know, we maintained balance and I like the idea that both of them, like this movie really pushed the idea of that certain point of view, Kylo's point of view versus Luke's, Ray's, and likewise yeah. both Ray and Kylo saw saw that scene where, you know, they had defeated Snoke where they were at that point where they could join together and both of them was utterly convinced the other person was going to join them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and I think this is the problem with talking about this movie now because it's like reading two thirds of a book and then it's yeah. like let's talk <laughs> yeah. about this story like we, we don't know what the ending is you know and they probably don't either to be honest so they can't know because I think the plan was to make it very Leia centric right yeah and that's it's gone. not a possibility anymore so let's talk about the power sets just in terms of the the role playing game because that that obviously was a big interest of me as I was watching it. Force connections across the galaxy. 
Yeah, so is this a total... I don't know if anybody played the game of, okay, how do you do this? How do you represent this? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anybody come up with anything? I was thinking of like mastery sense, like committing four force die to keep it going, something like that, where it's just, you know, only accessible at that top tier if that's how it happens. That ability just has to be plot, right? Right? I don't know. Then also it being Snoke being the one to do the connection instead of those two. Right. Just going by that concept, we haven't really seen something like that in mm -hmm. the actual FFG system because it probably just wasn't something that came up. Like Right, because there's communicators. Who would think of being a middleman? So there's a concept. I'm not one to go back to the old EU days and like pluck stuff out very often, but... There was a book, I think it was I, Jedi. I don't know if you read I it. I have. It was Michael Stackpole. It's Cornhorn. And he takes a really interesting approach into it, which has obviously all been thrown out. But he had this approach where people are really talented at certain aspects of the Force, but not so much at others. Yep. <laughs> so Cornhorn. Ah, uh, yes. I feel like both The Last Jedi and this book have something in common, which is they take one very small piece of another movie and they amplify it by a billion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This whole, like, forced conversation thing is really just those moments where Luke and Vader are like, Father, son. Yeah. Oh, and then also the Leia just before that. And and it's like, let's. It's like he watched that movie and went, ooh, I'm going to take that part and just make it a story point, right? Like, yeah. he amplified it by mm -hmm. a billion. I, Jedi, does a similar thing. He takes when Han Solo starts shooting Darth Vader in the hand, right? Right. And we all kind of shrug and go, well, I don't know, that was weird. <laughs> Who knows how he made that happen? And he creates a whole new force power based off of it. He, it's like force energy drain, and you can store up that energy and release it as more force energy and blah, 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 blah. I think like if you're going to try to do this long distance force telephone thing, you'd probably want to pick one of the... Not even just sense mastery, but I would almost limit it to one of the specific job classes. Oh, like a, more like a talent. Yeah, or mystic. Interesting. That actually makes some sense. Like maybe a, maybe a signature ability. Yeah. You cool. could even f create it like that. Like I, I don't know the, the tree too much, but I know in um, Ghosts of Dathomir, there is a unique form of influence, I want to say. Yeah, it's something pretty close to influence. Yeah, so there's no reason you couldn't make, like, this special version of sense mm -hmm. or something like that that gives that ability, but, and make it a plot point in your campaign to learn it, perhaps. You bringing up Ghosts of Dathomir kind of makes me think of that and Chronicles of the Gatekeeper because the way that the Force Trees are constructed are gated. Mm. You must do a few things to actually be able to get all of the Force Tree. Mm -hmm. And I love that concept like if i was doing a force tree in my campaign it would be something like that where sure you might be able to get it from just seeing someone do it but that's a base power sure you may be able to put like five force dice to it if that's your power level but you still only have the base power right to get refinement to get the sharpened edge it's what you sort of train kind of like uh, corn horn and the volcanic eruption it could just be this is going to sound insulting and it's not meant to be it could just be someone just sweet stalks you into it because i'm thinking about like on dice for brains with mora and farsight like turning into force microscope yeah and that wasn't that's not really like what it says in the book but 
actually that is one of the things on it yeah the telescopic things from farsight uh microscopic is too microscope yeah really yeah yeah Yeah. it's a 5xp part of it never mind then i didn't that's so weird because that's the first time i've ever actually remembered that power (laughs) i forgot it every time in the show that's amazing farsight is a dirt cheap force power that i i I gave no no stock until mora used it to great success (laughs) and it's one of those things of if you've got a master it then turns into a free power mm-hmm. <laughs> because a base power is 5 XP. Having a master makes a base power 5 XP cheaper. Jeez. That's a little dirty. I I, That's dirty. I really need to read that book better. <laughs> well, we did um, We did do something similar to the conversation where we were using sense in the terms of like the planetary-wide communication and you know we're fudging our way around the power level for that, obviously. But, uh, you know, we didn't do the back and forth communication. It was like the one way, which, you know, I guess they have instances of that in the films, at least. So now what Mm -hmm. about other powers at that sort of distance? Like, uh, oh, I don't know, misdirect. Right. Because that's just the astral projection level. Really? Right. I don't know. Is that (laughs) is that a whole new power set or is that another mastery of misdirect at that point? You know? I'm I'm really thinking that that's just another mastery level. Mm. Like it's going one level beyond what's currently there. Yeah. Or like five levels, whatever. Or especially considering like the image that was chosen to do the projection. Right, that was my big clue because that was the way Ben remembered it, yep. right? Right. Like through all the different histories, that's the one that was being used and it's going to be the one that Ben remembers. It probably is the last one that Leia remembers. Yeah. Yeah. He shows up again as the way these two remember. So can we can we also point out, though, that Luke Skywalker is powerful enough to make a force projection that a droid can see? There was some yeah. inconsistencies yeah, in, in a lot of that. <laughs> no, but I think I just felt that that just demonstrated how powerful he was, that he wasn't just tricking your mind into thinking he was there it was like i'm actually going to bend the light into a form that even this droid can perceive that's the power argument that we kept running into was is this mentally making everyone see it or is he actually projecting a physical manifestation and like dice make you think it's a physical manifestation because if I'm not mistaken, they actually linger longer than he does. They do. They're the last things to disappear. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the split we keep getting. And is he actually convincing them that he's there through there? Because if he was projecting, I don't know if that, you know, that's the argument we keep hitting. It, would it be his current form if he was actually projecting something rather than the one everyone would remember? But that's splitting hairs. So. But I think that's, again, like, I, I <laughs> for me... And, you know, people are complaining, oh, Luke's so weak. But for me, that just makes all of that, it makes him more powerful. Yeah. That he's able to create a physical manifestation of whatever he wants it to look like. Yeah. Even if he's trying to, you know, it's not going to instantly pull. I mean, it can't be whatever their last vision is, right? Because he's not holding the right lightsaber. Yeah. Well, he, I think he did that on purpose again because... Because that was the lightsaber that Ben wanted. That was, you know, this legendary weapon that he cared about. Right, exactly. So I, I, I think everything <laughs> was just trying to get under his skin and make the biggest distraction he could. And that worked. But if you're arguing that he's just pulling on Ben's memories, then it wouldn't be that. He right. could be that lightsaber. It would have to be his... No. 
his green one, because that's the one he remembers. So that's why I think he's shaping all of it. Luke is creating every aspect of it. I'm absolutely mm. agreeing with you, Chris. Like The entire thing is the goodbye to Leia and the messing with Ben's head. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of the two things that I'm figuring Luke is really at the center of, at least in that situation. It's Yoda's finished pulling his fast one on him, and he's saying goodbye to Leia. He's then making sure that they can all get out. And the best way of doing that is making sure that there is no question, this is the person. I know there's a couple signature abilities in the game where it's, Everyone takes a look at this person as the threat. It's oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tanking in MMO terms. Mm-hmm. He has pulled threat, mm-hmm. like the boss, all the minions. This is the person that you attack, and then he bubbles like a paladin. <laughs> and I guess the other question I would have would be still thinking about what power is it to connect over the force? Is why would you need to do it? I mean, this is a world where we have. Oh, are you referencing, like, why use the power at all when you could have... Well, why would you need it? You have a holographic projector that can, like, go across the galaxy. Right. So I think that maybe is more toward, well, just make it a plot point. Because uh, well, there's not... I, I don't... Uh, Star Wars holograms, though, don't look that great. It's not like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always lines in them, and they're usually kind of blue. No, I know that. but But my point is, like... If you're going to make this a signature ability that you could buy, well, why would you ever need it? Mm-hmm. And this like kind of hits the the whole force FaceTime thing, too. We're like, well, in a game, they're going to have communicators unless I've decided they don't for some reason. And, and then there's light side points and all that. So what is this ability kind of replacing in terms of a game mechanic? Not that they always have to, but... right. Okay, one thing is a if you're taking a look at it from a game mechanic and what it provides versus what it doesn't, and this is sort of getting into the minutia of things, mm-hmm. one of the things that might be an idea is introducing setbacks for trying to talk over distance. Yeah. Like if you are going screen to screen, you always have the ability to flick that screen off. It's along the lines of how us doing this recording we're not looking at each other. So because of that, we don't have physical manifestations of what we're doing, like how I'm waving my hands around in trying to get this across. Mm. Yeah, that could be one way. You could also, it's also something that can't be intercepted. Oh, there you go. Yep, there you go. That too. Like the force presence on a different planet, to me, that really sort of speaks to a lot of the older style stories where, you're dealing with someone and then they're just not really there. It's almost yeah. a ghost. Or is it? And, you know, your your shadow kind of has that mechanic set, too. So you're just looking at now, then how do you do that on the planetary scale from across the galaxy? I guess what I'm saying is I'm walking back on my idea and making it a signature ability. Because I'm the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, this isn't actually that useful. Right. I can't think of a lot <laughs> of reasons why. I mean, yes, it takes a lot of power. And yes, in this particular story, in The Last Jedi, it was very vital to the, the the progression of the characters and for the conclusion but well, you know on your average story in a, on, a, on the role-playing game it's not going to be not going to come up that that's true and the cost was pretty high yeah, not really <laughs> i i could see at least my group of players making a lot of use out of it because it wouldn't be a matter of connecting to one another but to npcs and other allies like they spent a considerable amount of money 
to purchase this like rig so they could <laughs> connect to the hollow net or make use of the hollow net without being backtraced by the empire. If they could have just dropped some XP and had a force ability that that could do it. Oh yeah, they, they would have done it. <laughs> hmm. Taking a look at the time, there's one scene that I do kind of want to take a quick look at that is related to this. The power of force ghosts. Because until this point, we hadn't really seen Force Ghosts do anything. <laughs> Much less cast lightning from the sky. <laughs> we actually have Yoda doing something. Two things. He actually hits Luke on the head, too. <laughs> Good point. Though Luke deserved it. Oh, did he deserve it? Well, and on top of that, for the whole thing, it's to distract him. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, I love Yoda. I love that goofy Yoda, too. <laughs> Joshua Brown, who had been a co-host on this, he and I got talking like almost instantly after he got out of the theater. That was one of the things that just sort of came up was how Yoda was in it, where you had this powerful force ghost that could do things. Well, well let's, from a gameplay perspective, let's first answer a question of, is Octo a virgins in the force? Yeah. Okay. I would think yes. so. So maybe that's why there's kind of, that allows a number of different effects, like Luke to do what he did, or a force ghost to manifest the way it did. I use it constantly on our show. Anytime I can assign something to a virgins hey, for why it's behaving weird, I do. Virgences are just fun in so many ways. I, I do want to run more non-force users through virgences. Yes, the other thing too, I mean, and to, to support that, a lot of time the force was being used a lot. The sky did react very often. Yeah. Good point. When Luke, you know, blows up the hut, there's a bunch of rain and lightning. Even the first time they connect, right? Like Ray and Kylo, it's raining. You know, the weather and the, that part of the planet seems very connected to anytime somebody's using the force. And in a very general sense, as I don't know if we've even mentioned, I mean, the film was beautiful. Like, all of yes. the visuals mm -hmm. in this thing were oh, exquisite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, the man can direct, for sure. <laughs> I mean, all the set pieces were just great. I just They were all fantastic. Do you want to wrap with, like, a favorite thing from it or something? Or best RPG element? Yeah, that actually sounds like a pretty good place. A favorite element from The Last Jedi that we may or may not have covered. Um, the, uh, lizard nuns. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you loved every single thing about this movie. <laughs> Come on, one should have been yelling my cabbages. <laughs> We've actually already touched upon my my favorite things. I really love the, the Kylo Ray conversations and how all that went. Uh, also, does just an honorable mention, when that dark side flip of those TIE fighters coming in over the planet of Crate. I love the Falcon's appearance and then leading him off in Finn's, oh, they hate that ship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Solid bit. Solid yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 So for me, the, the nostalgia, just because I, you know, wore out the VHS on, you know, Jedi so much, like seeing Yoda in puppet form, like that, that was like the, the sucker punch to the nostalgia for me. So just that moment of mm -hmm. seeing that, I was, I was, almost embarrassingly excited about. <laughs> I like the way they approached the order of the Jedi, what needs to happen, how it transition. I know we're going to talk about probably that a bit more later, but um, just the way they approached the rituals and organizations around the orders of force users. I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. 
I'm really interested in seeing what actually does happen with the Resistance. Like, right now, it's it has been whittled away to its barest essential. It has actually become a spark. But it's actually a spark that has started to catch hold with what I can only hope is a slight tribute to the Star Wars kid of yesteryear right. with the broom boy, mm-hmm. who does have a name that I can't remember at the moment, at the very end. Beautiful final shot. Good news, everyone. There's still enough for us to each have a piece. Keep that away from me. I still have some of the marmalade stuck to my hands. Why is it just so sticky? Well, you're missing out. This one has extra sulfur. Oh, good. The purgle is just where I left it. Now, why isn't anyone here to come pick us up? Why is there all this police tape around it? What happened here? Don't worry. I suspect it to be purely decorative. Now get this thing started up. We've got other jails to tour. This has been the best bachelor party ever. And on to another star-filled tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way. And you can find me at Deuterium Ice. And you can find me at Twelfth Night. That's one, two, T-H, and night with a K. I'm at Dice for Brains. And I'm at Sil Zero Chris. That's S-I-L-Z-E-R-O. You can find previous episodes and links to things we talk about on the show, as well as our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way, at thehydeanway.com. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes. And while you're there, help us out by rating and reviewing the show. Drop us a holocom at tales at thehydeanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash thehydeanway or at ko-fi.com slash thehydeanway. The hug lingers too long and becomes awkward. I, you have an escape plan, right? Well... How weird do you want it to get? I don't need any new charges added on if that's what you're asking. Well, I have some homemade Silestin strudel I brought from home. I thought maybe if I was willing to share it with everyone, maybe they'd open the cage to eat it. And then... That's a stupid plan. No one even likes Silestin strudel. No, what we need is... Wait, doesn't Silestin strudel explode when mixed with Moncal marmalade? Not all Silestin strudel. But ma, but mama's moncal marmalade. But mama's mon. Yeah. Ooh, that's a mouthful. Hold on. They don't all do, but you can bet mama's mom. Yeah, mama's moncal marmalade will. It's that old republic flavor in the new republic packaging. Um, they don't all, but you can bet mom's moncal marmalade will. It's got that sweet, sultry flavor that all the explosives crave. Not all of them do, but you can bet that mom's moncal marmalade will. It's just chunky enough to be offensive to all interior structures. <laughs> Don't go with anything other than mama's. It's a trap. Yeah. As an aside, uh, if you haven't seen it, go see Looper. It's a, it was sort of my background research for watching The Last Jedi, and it really did sort of set me up to appreciate this movie very well. Brian Johnson did a lot of sort of head fakes in it that it's like you'd think no one would ever do. And then, yeah, well, Ryan Johnson does that. It's an amazingly shot movie as well.